Let's pray again before we study God's word together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you will speak to us this morning through your word, remove any errors from the remarks I deliver, and cause the hearers to truly understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear your word now, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. William Borden died when he was 25 years old. He was on his way to China to do missionary work. Borden was not your ordinary missionary. He was the William Borden, the heir to a massive fortune through the Borden Dairy Estate. When he was 16, Borden's parents gave him a trip around the world to celebrate graduating from high school. It was during this trip that Borden heard the call to become a missionary. He wrote home to tell his parents that he was going to give his life to prepare for the mission field. Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible to document this decision, no reserves. He would sacrifice his fortune for Christ. Upon returning home, Borden went to Yale and then the Princeton Theological Seminary. When he graduated, he turned down several lucrative job opportunities. His father, who had promised him he would always have a job at the Borden Dairy, apparently in an attempt to prevent him from going to the mission field, told him he would never be able to work at the company again. Borden was determined to do mission work in China. Shunning his father and the lucrative job opportunities, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible to document his decision. No retreats. He would only press forward in his pursuit of Christ. Having determined that his call was to serve Muslims in China, Borden set sail, stopping in Egypt to study Arabic. While in Egypt, Borden contracted cerebral meningitis and died within a month, never making it to China. Was his life a waste? Not according to the last two words he wrote in his Bible, no regrets. This morning, as we study Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27, which can be found on page 822 of the Bibles provided, we'll use a modified version of Borden's two-word entry as an outline. Jesus invites us first to follow him without reserves, second to follow him without retreating, and finally to follow him without regrets. I'll use, I'll repeat the headings as we come to them. As you turn into the text, let me recap what has happened in chapter 16 so far. As the chapter opened, the Pharisees and Sadducees demand the sign from Jesus to show that he is God. Jesus tells them that the only sign they will receive is the sign of Jonah, previewing his death and resurrection. This is actually a critical moment in the ministry of Jesus. The disciples and others had previously been warned not to tell anyone who Jesus was, but now, as Jesus heads towards the cross, he reveals more of himself and his mission. After responding to the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus warns his disciples not to fall prey to their teachings. In the middle of the chapter, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus begins to tell the disciples more clearly of his death and resurrection. Jesus then has to rebuke Peter, who is longing for Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom. And this brings us to our passage for this morning, where Jesus provides us instructions on what is required to follow him as a true disciple. Listen now as I read Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So first, Jesus tells us that the true cost of discipleship requires us to follow him without reserves. This is what we learn in verse 24. Listen to it again. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To reserve means to hold something back. If we're honest with ourselves, it's something that we have all done. We have withheld that which rightly belongs to God. One prominent example of this is found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. We also rob God with our time and our talents. Too often we neglect to spend our time and talents on matters related to kingdom work. When Jesus invites us to follow him, our decision to follow, understanding that it occurs only through his effectual call, involves a conscious decision of self-denial. This is not simply a decision to walk behind Jesus, but a wholehearted decision to deny ourselves. Our natural tendency is to focus on what ourself serves our own interests. We make decisions that are consistent with making ourselves prosper. But in order to be a true follower of Jesus, we must renounce self-interest and concentrate, concentrate on meeting the needs of others. One theologian characterized follow in this way. A true disciple of Christ is one that does follow him in duty and shall follow him to glory. He is one that comes after Christ, not one that prescribes to him as Peter now undertook to do, forgetting his place. A disciple of Christ comes after him as the sheep after the shepherd. He is the one that aims at the same end that Christ aimed at, the glory of God. He is led by a spirit, treads in his steps, submits to his conduct, and follows the lamb wherever he goes. To follow Christ means that we have to admit and accept that we cannot live our lives the way we want to. This principle is entirely counter-American and counter-cultural, for self is king and the self-made man is glorified and revered. We want to be king, but to be a Christian means that Jesus is king, and we must follow him as declared in his word. To follow Jesus not only requires an attribute of self-denial, it requires or comes at a cost. The road that Jesus was about to take to Jerusalem was not a road of glory and exaltation. It was a rocky road that led to the cross. It was a road of cost and self-denial. We see this clearly in Jesus' prayer on the Mount of Olives. In Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42, we read, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup Jesus referenced is the wrath of God to be poured out on him for the sins he did not commit. Notwithstanding, he asked not for his will, but for the will of the Father to be done. When Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, after Jesus told the disciples that he must die, 
He was essentially asking Jesus to spare himself. But Jesus informed Peter that sparing himself was not an option, and neither is it an option for those who will be disciples of Jesus. We must come after Christ for his birth, his life, and his death. Through acts of self-denial, we must empty ourselves. This is what Jesus did for us. Listen to how Paul describes this act of self-denial in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Denial of self requires us to have the mind of Christ. He totally yielded his will to the will of the Father. If you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, this is your calling. Our selfish desires, too, must die. When your wishes are crossed, your advice is disregarded, and your opinions are ridiculed, do not let anger arise in your heart. This is how we die to self. When we are content with the food we have, the clothes we wear, and the money we have, not clamoring for material wealth, the material wealth of others, this is how we die to self. When you avoid praising yourself or seeking commendation from others, this is how you die to self. If you receive a promotion at work, instead of patting yourself on the back, praise God. When your brother or sister corrects you, receive it with humility. This is how you die to self. Self-denial is recognizing that we have nothing good to offer God. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We cannot please God or redeem anything in our flesh. We have to stop believing that we can save ourselves or that we can do anything within our own capacity to please God. The selfless perspective we're required to take says, I contribute nothing to my worth. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 18, and look at verses 9 to 14. And you can find the passage on page 877 of the Bibles provided. Friends, we need to stop thinking of ourselves, of somebody. We, not, we need to, let's stop thinking of ourselves or thinking that we're somebody and recognize that outside of Christ, we are poor and have no riches. This is something the Pharisee did not recognize, exalting himself, but something the tax collector did, humbling himself. Listen as I read Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So instead of thinking highly of ourselves, we must think highly of Christ. Our only righteousness must come through him. To follow Christ in self-denial is to hear to the instructions we received in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We must deny our sinful self, ungodliness, and worldly lusts. We have to part with them and their sinful companions. We must deny righteous self and renounce our own works for righteousness. We must deny ourselves of the pleasures and profits of this world when, we were, when they are competing with Christ. We must drop and banish any notion or expectation of an earthly kingdom and worldly grandeur and think of nothing but reproach, persecution, and death for the sake of our Lord and Master. No one is forced to participate, but if you're going to be a disciple, you have terms you need to meet. As one theologian once said, when Christ bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. You must deny yourself. In all things, you must deny your, your own will, however pleasing, and do the will of God. Our personal ambitions must be placed to the side, and we must embrace the words of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The rich young ruler would have done well to read and understand this verse, but from what we can tell, he refused to follow Christ without reserves. Most of us are probably familiar with the story from Luke chapter 18. The rich ruler approaches Jesus to ask what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells him essentially to follow the commandments. The ruler responds that he has kept the commandments since his youth. Now listen to verses 22 and 23. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The ruler's response demonstrates that he loved his riches more than he loved God, and that he in fact had not kept all of the commandments, including the first, to love God more than all else. When we desire worldly possessions more than we desire Jesus, we're living with reserves. William Borden's goal was to follow Jesus without reserves. He had another entry in his Bible. The note read, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. No to self and yes to Jesus every time. This is our call to follow Jesus without reserves. Second, 
We are to follow Jesus without retreating. People normally retreat when they find the process dangerous or unpleasant, or when they view the battle as unwinnable. But Jesus tells us in our passage that true disciples will not retreat. Look at verse 24 again. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. By using the term cross, Jesus was informing the disciples that a life of following him would involve more than minor discomforts. The disciples would have known that by using the term cross, Jesus was looking for the utmost in self-denial. All forms of self-seeking and selfishness were required to disappear, and that even when life became dangerous, the imperative Jesus is stating is that even even the thought of crucifixion should not turn you back. You must keep following. The fact that taking up the cross was continuous, was a continuous activity is made clear in the parallel passage from our text in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, read earlier today. We see Jesus again foretelling of his death and explaining the requirement for being a disciple. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Taking up our cross daily daily tells us that it's not a one-time affair. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul did not count his life dear to himself. Instead, every day he was willing to die or lay down his life for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The cross points to suffering, and Jesus alerts his disciples so that they will be prepared to stand their ground and not retreat when it comes. The cross represents not just hardships, but our cross is our daily lives. Not just a particularly hard suffering or trial, it is where God has placed us, we must accept where we are, knowing that he loves us so greatly and is infinitely wise and loving. Because of this, Jesus wanted the disciples to understand that not only could they, they would be persecuted for righteousness sake, either for doing well or for not doing ill. Jesus wants us to have a complete understanding that the cross lies in our way and is prepared for us. This is not a call to pursue suffering, but it is a call to resist retreating. As Matthew Henry has stated, we must not by our our rashness and indiscretion pull crosses down upon our own heads, but must take them up when they are laid in our way. We must so manage an affliction that it may not be a stumbling block or a hindrance to us in any service we have to do for God. We must take it up out of our way by getting over the offense of the cross. We're not called to avoid burdens related to the cross, but to bear them. In times of suffering and sorrow, and in times of comfort and joy, we must look to Jesus. The cross he bore with the curse upon it has made our burden light and easy for us. In exchange for bearing our burden, he has called us to a life of consistent following. We must follow in all instances of holiness and obedience. We must study and imitate the master and conform ourselves to his very example. True disciples are called to put their lives at risk. We're called to share in the afflictions of Jesus. In this way, we show our commitment to live the way that he lived and our commitment to truly follow him. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, 
which can be found on page 815, and look with me at verses 17 and 18, and then verses 24 and 25. In these verses, Jesus confirms that persecution will come and that a servant is not above his master. We cannot take parts in the benefits of Christ unless we walk the hard road of obedience. Now listen to verses 17 and 18. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then skipping down the verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So this is the cost of true discipleship. We must sacrifice our values, our goals, our loves, and our activities. We must sacrifice friendships and face persecution. In the face of all this, we must not retreat. Instead, we want to paint a picture of, pe of a people who endurely serve God's kingdom, not the present world order. In this way, we can repeat the words of Paul in 2 Timothy verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul tells us how to finish the race in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself found I myself should be disqualified. So Paul has a single-minded focus. He is pursuing the advancement of the gospel. Just like the athlete sometimes endures training that is difficult and uncomfortable to obtain a goal, so Paul endures emotion and physical hardship and gives up his rights for material support to advance the gospel. Self-denial and bearing our cross daily is the essence of running without retreating. Your best life now? Far from it. Jesus does not offer a prosperity gospel. There is no promise of material wealth, popularity, or any other common fleshly desire. The road to heaven is a difficult one. It is a road full of suffering and submission. And we see submission briefly in Matthew chapter 20, from the middle of verse 26 through 28. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The path that Jesus followed was not, was not easy, but he persevered and did not retreat. We're called to do the same. Again, our call is not to pursuit, but the endurance of persecution, rejection, shame, and suffering for his sake. Practically. Moms, take up your cross daily to nurture your children, even when the world looks upon you with disdain because you're not chasing material wealth with employment outside of the home. Children, be willing to lose your friends instead of disobeying your parents. 
Parents, be willing to discipline your children, even when they contend that in doing so you're disrespecting the friendship you have with them. Singles, wait patiently on the Lord and save yourselves from marriage. The call to follow Christ is not for the goodies of this world, but to abandon yourself for service to him. I'm no proponent of Facebook theology, but one post caught my attention some time ago. The post simply read, God wants full custody, not just weekend visits. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. The call to follow Jesus is one to follow him daily. There's no such thing as a Sunday morning Christian. At work, when your colleagues mistreat you, we must pray for them. We should confess our sins regularly, not just during small group meeting times. We should love our enemies and forgive them. Jesus grants his children his love every day. Parents, especially take note of this. Even when your children sin, do not withhold your love or discipline them in anger. Discipline them, yes, but also comfort and restore them through the gospel. This is a daily call, even days when we don't feel like it. If we expect to follow Christ in his glory, we must also follow him in his example. Those who humble themselves in this life will be exalted in the next. We must live by and abide in those words of that great hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with us, we must follow. With the world behind us and the cross before us, we must follow. No turning back. No turning back. Let's follow Jesus without retreating. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might find this teaching to be strange. You've been instructed to deny yourself and not to live as you choose. For what, you might ask, and I'm glad you have, because this brings us to our final point. If you combine self-denial with patient suffering, or if you will follow Jesus without reserves and ultimately do not retreat, you can live and die or follow him with no regrets. Look again at verses 25 to 27. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Friends, no matter what the televangelist might tell you, we're not here to live our best life now. To do so does not lead to victory, but is a self-defeating process. The life Jesus refers to as losing or saving in this passage is really the soul. One commentator put it like this, Jesus is saying that to concentrate on saving one's own soul is to lose it. If we regard life as no more than this ordinary physical life, if we spend our time and our resources on getting as much out of this life as we can, Jesus is saying we lose life in its more important sense. To spend oneself trying to get the best one can out of this present life, the here and now, is to lose life in the fullest sense. Or as another commentator said, you can shoot for earth and miss out on heaven, or you can shoot for heaven and get the earth thrown in. 
There's only one way for us to lose our lives for the sake of Jesus. We must put the service of God before everything else. We must devote all of our time to serving Christ. This is a person who finds life. That person finds that the life he lived before surrendering all to Christ was actually no life at all. Full and abundant life only comes through Christ. Anything less is really just selfish concerns. Jesus drives his point home with two questions. First, he asks, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The world Jesus refers to, or the riches of this world, that our hearts too often crave. To demonstrate how futile the world's cravings are, Jesus does not limit the gain here to some of the riches, but grants that we would gain the whole world, every craving or material good we have ever desired, all of it at once. The ways of this world and the possessions it holds are not worth the soul. This is magnified by Jesus' second question, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? No man can offer to buy back his soul once it is lost. Would you take all the riches in the world in exchange for your life? Of course not. You would never have the opportunity to enjoy any of the riches, so it is an exchange that is simply not worth making. Jesus tells himself, Jesus himself had been tempted in this way. Satan offered him all the riches of this world in the third temptation. Listen to Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is how we're called to respond to the gains of this world. Jesus knew there was nothing to be gained from siding with Satan and possessing the things created. Instead, he reserved his love for the creator and worshiped him. We can follow Jesus because he has in every way been tested. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus resisted the possessions of this world, and we must do the same. The message Jesus delivers to the disciples and us in verse 27 is this. Not only is possessing the things of this world futile when they are possessed to the detriment of following him, but in addition to losing the earthly life, there is an ultimate judgment to follow. Listen to verse 27 again. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The Son of Man comes not to be judged, but to judge and to hold every man and woman, every son and daughter, accountable for what they have done. When Jesus speaks of repayment, repay is used for divine reward. Punishment will come for disloyalty. He will judge each person according to what they have done. What you have done here does not refer to your works, your church attendance, or anything else of that nature, but whether you have at all times remained loyal or maintained your commitment to Jesus. In other words, you'll have to answer the question, have you served him perfectly? 
have you served him perfectly? The answer to that question is no. Not one of us, this includes me, has perfectly served God. Not one of us has completely denied the world. The fact that we have not lived perfectly leaves us subject to the Son of Man and his ultimate judgment because failing to live perfectly is sin. <clears throat> Our love for the things of this world is sin. Our refusal to take up our cross when we might lose a friend who is not a believer is sin. Our neglecting to love and serve our neighbor in need when we have the opportunity to do so is sin. This sin must be punished by a good and righteous God, one who is holy. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and this is what we deserve. But God in his goodness gives us life through his son Jesus. All the standards that we're required to meet and have failed to do so, Jesus met. He lived perfectly, humbly submitted himself to everything, everything to God. After having lived perfectly, he went to the cross and bore the sins of those who will acknowledge that they have not lived perfectly and need a savior. So Jesus died the perfect death for the sins that you and I have committed, but God has raised him from the dead, showing that his sacrifice for repentant sinners was completely acceptable. In doing so, he defeated sin and death on behalf of those who placed their hope and trust in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. If you want to know more about this, please find me at the door at the conclusion of the service. There's nothing more important that we can talk about this morning than knowing this good and loving God through his son, Jesus Christ. The call to suffer and submit does not come without a promised reward. This is how Jesus concludes the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus' call to his disciples in our text this morning is to follow his path of meekness, mercy, and peacemaking. The temporal cost we pay now will be far surpassed by the promised reward. I hope that this morning you will see that the cost of not following Christ is to lose the reward that is promised for following him. And that you will see, as one author has said, the pleasures of sin for a season cannot be compared with the glory that will be afforded the faithful who follow Christ. Friends, any earthly reward pales in comparison to the reward that Jesus offers. Listen to Matthew chapter 19 verses 27 to 29. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you, and what then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will, in, and will inherit eternal life. So we must give up the gods of our lives here on earth and follow Jesus. That inappropriate relationship you're in with someone who is not your spouse, give it up. The pornography you're looking at on your computer, give it up. The way you love your material possessions more than you love God, give them up. 
They are fleeting and last for a season, but Jesus offers eternal life. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you've not chosen to follow Jesus, there's no inheritance in heaven for you. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse it's 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let these words ring crystal clear to you. There is no inheritance in heaven for those who live their best life now or who seek to save their lives for their own sake. Friends, now is the time for you to trust in and follow Jesus. And we should conclude. I want to do so by reminding those of us who are Christians how we obtain the power to live, that we will do so imperfectly, a life without reserves, without retreating, and with no regrets. Once again, we must consider Jesus and the cross, for the cross shows his infinite love for his people. What did Jesus gain by the cross? He already had all glory before he came to earth. What he gained was you. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Jesus prior to the cross was the purchasing of his bride, the church, those who will follow him. Only by focusing on the cross and Jesus' great love for you will you have the motivation to live a life of self-denial, motivated by your love for him, not a motivation of self-reward or righteousness. As A.W. Pink said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. The power is in the cross and reminding yourself of it daily as you take up your cross to live for him exactly where he has you right now. Friends, let's live a life with no reserves, with no retreats, and with no regrets. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, give us strength to follow you without reserves and without retreating, understanding that those who abide in Christ will have no regrets. We pray this so that our church might be built up and that you might receive all glory. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> Friends, brothers and sisters, the Father's love for us is vast beyond all measure. As we have just learned, Jesus, God, the Father, sent his only Son to rescue us from our sins. And now through faith in Jesus, we can have communion with him in heaven. So we celebrate Jesus' sacrifice when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and Lord willing, we will do that momentarily. And in preparation for that, let's join together in singing of his great love 
and how deep the Father's love for us found on the insert in your bulletin. Please stand as we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us.